When I moved back to Amherst, Nova Scotia after 15 years away, something had changed. Like many other towns, our local businesses and business people have been overwhelmed by large corporations and monopolies. This hurt the spirit of our communities. We lost our autonomy, our self-reliance, and our hope. So join me as I learn more about where we are now, how we got here, and what we can do to take back our communities. I'm Andrew Cameron, and Monopolies Killed My Hometown. Last week, I made the promise that I'd keep that episode to 20 minutes or so, because I, like I said, I could talk forever on housing. But I didn't promise I wouldn't talk about housing again. And we're going to come back and we're going to talk more housing again today. My goal here is, again, keep this episode to 20 minutes. I'll see how I make out with it, though. And so in the last episode, when I talked about housing, I talked about how we need to build lower than average cost housing to have a hope of actually bringing the cost and price of housing down. Right? And I brought this up as a counter-argument to the just, we just need to build more crowd. And you can find a link in the show notes for that episode. And I brought this up because in the context of St. Coban looking to buy building products of Canada and reducing competition in the building supply industries. And I want to talk about housing, again, in a different context. And because for me, when I look at this, housing is a difficult conversation to have in, in reference to the Competition Bureau and competition policy specifically. And because so much of the nitty gritty of housing is done at the municipal level, you know, this is where land use bylaws are created, municipal planning strategies, uh, the building inspectors enforce building standards. This all happens at the municipal level. And beyond that, like very few mergers or sales of apartment buildings would actually reach the notification thresholds for the Competition Bureau. And even if it did, the market definition would be so tricky for the Competition Bureau to try to do anything with. I mean... You know, does an apartment in Halifax compete with an apartment in Fredericton? No, it doesn't. But does an apartment in Halifax compete with an apartment in Dartmouth? Or what about like an apartment in Toronto? Does it compete with an apartment in Etobicoke or Vancouver and Burnaby, Ottawa? And I don't think they do, but I really have no idea. And I don't see how the Competition Bureau would view this. And so again, I just want to reiterate that like I am in the housing industry, we build and rent apartments and I've been doing it for over 13 years. And if the housing market did turn, you know, our company would suffer. I would lose financially if the housing market in Canada crashed. But for me, I can plan for that and I can handle that, you know, and I will be okay. And the main reason that I want to talk more about housing is, as I start to think more about this, is I think that if we don't fix the housing situation for people that are younger than me, I fear we're going to have a generation or more of people who just check out from our governance systems and start looking for other governance structures that they feel will actually work for them. If our government is saying, you know, housing is a human right and then is not doing anything for it to be affordable, at some point you got to question if our governments are actually standing up and actually mean that. So that's what I really worry about. That's hard for me to plan for. And I, I'm okay giving up a little bit to avoid that situation. And so, like I said before, housing doesn't fit neatly into competition bureau, competition policy perspective. But in my mind, there is a huge competition, market power, that sort of dynamic discussion to be had around housing. And let's go back to the beginning. Let's start with the premise that we need to build a significant amount of housing to bring the price down, right? And so last episode, I pointed out that CMHC produced a report in 2022 that said we need to build 5.8 million new homes by 2030. A year later, we are already falling behind that pace. 
So of this 5.8 million CMHC needs, using our previous averages, we would build 2.3 million. So we need to add on an extra 3.5 million homes. And so when I say homes, units, apartments, I think they're all sort of interchangeable. It's like one dwelling unit, like a 24 unit apartment building would have in this conversation to me, 24 homes. And so we're not on track to increase the supply enough to meet this target. And so for me, that's the starting point for the monopoly competition conversation. So the original argument is that we need to build enough houses that we will create an oversupply of houses, apartments, units, and therefore supply will far outstrip demand and that will cause prices to come down. That's the logic. Now we need to ask the next question, okay, who is actually going to do that? And this argument is based on the private sector turning around and doing that. And you know, the federal government and the provincial governments have put some money into co-ops and nonprofit housing, but we're really reliant on the private sector to do it, right? For example, me. When we look back historically, and I think this is one of those things people also understand about what monopolies do. And so if we look back historically, like I said, is they control supply to maintain the prices that they want. You know, Alcoa in the 1930s did it with aluminum. I mean, De Beers, the diamond monopoly is famous for this. US Steel did the same in the early 1900s. I mean, you can look now at OPEC, the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries. They do this out in the open today. When they want the price of oil to go up, they cut back supply. When they want the price to go down, they produce more oil. But again, this logic of the market power is hard to apply to housing because again, so much housing is looked at and done at a municipal level. And so CMHC does collect data at the municipal level. They don't look at any communities less than 10,000 people. And I mean, it, like I get calls every year about rental market surveys for down in Yarmouth. But I think a lot of this data eventually gets aggregated into sort of the provincial or national level. Actually, CMHC has launched a really cool new portal where you can get in and really look at a bunch of different data and a bunch of different information that they have about the housing industry. But one thing that I see is CMHC does not get down to look specifically at, okay, who is it that's building the houses or apartments or who is developing land? They don't look at it in that context. Luckily, I live in a small enough town and I know who is building new apartments in Amherst and in Yarmouth that I can do my own calculations for our markets. I did this a couple years ago. I pulled up Google Maps one day and I went through and counted all the houses and apartments that I built. And then I counted all the other houses and apartments that I knew that other people had built. Benefits of small towns is knowing who's building and knowing who's building where. And I know these markets really well and I may be off by a unit or two, but I'm not off a huge amount. In this case, the towns of Amherst and Yarmouth would have the exact information and could get the exact number of units that were built and who built them. But like for my analysis at this point, I could be off by five units and it doesn't change the impact significantly. So in Amherst, over those six years, there were 161 units built. Myself, our team, our business built 87 of them, so 54%. In Yarmouth, over the same time frame, there were 86 units built and we built 68, or about 80%, or 79%. So basically over those six years, we had 50% of the market share in Amherst and 79% of the market share of new apartments and new houses in the town of Amherst and Yarmouth, right? And when you look at it, like any supplier or producer who has over 50% of the market share in any market has dominance and control over the price and supply in that market. De Beers produces over 50% of the diamonds and can control the supply to raise or lower the prices they see fit. Actually, I think it can be even lower. Like some analysis are even at like 30% of the market share gives you pricing power. 
And so when I look at it, like our company and our business is small potatoes compared to the whole Canadian real estate market. I mean, when I look at this, I don't have the power to impact the Canadian real estate market. It impacts me, but I do have a significant control over the supply of new units in Amherst and Yarmouth, right? So in Yarmouth, we haven't built any new units since 2020. So the supply of the new units has dropped. In Amherst, we went from building 14 and a half new units per year to about eight units per year for 2021, 2022, and 2023. We need to be increasing the supply, but we just took six and a half units per year out of the new supply market. And so for me, like we chose to reduce the number of units we're building for many different reasons, right? Material shortages, labor shortages, we're running out of land. I was tired from COVID. Like there was a lot going on and a lot happening. I didn't decrease our construction and our pace because I was worried about increasing vacancies in our apartments or that if we built another house, it would sit there unsold, which is what the argument of building more supply will lower the price requires to actually happen. And I can tell you for me personally, because if I was worried about having too many vacancies for a new apartment building or was worried about sitting on an unsold house, I would cut back our new construction even more because of basically a fear of building something and having it sit empty. And so this becomes a challenge because our current approach or current argument is for the private sector, me, like I'm being asked to act against my own self-interest and continue building, even when I know that I don't want to or I'm fearful of the market being oversaturated. The argument requires me still to act against my own best interests. And so, like I said, go back to it. If you look at the Amherst market again, we built over 54% of the, all the new houses and apartments in, over that six-year window. I really have a huge impact on the supply of new houses and apartments. Because if I just stopped, it's such a huge impact on the supply in this market and in this area. And so I think it was like Ralph Waldo Emerson had the quote, you know, it's hard to get somebody to understand something when their pocketbook requires them to not understand it. Right. I think this is a really, really, really hard argument to make when it requires the massive private sector development industry to act against our own best interests. I'd make the argument in this case, if we want this to actually work, right? Like, let's say we still want to do this. We want to build enough houses so that the supply outstrips the demand prices come down. Waiting on the established players to act against their own interest isn't going to work. If we want to do it this way, if this is how we want to accomplish it, we need new competitors to get it into the industry, right? And again, I said, I've been involved in real estate since 2010 in Yarmouth and 2012 in Amherst. And when we started in Yarmouth, we were a new player in the development industry. By the time we came up to Amherst two years later, even though, I mean, I, that was me coming home, we were fairly established in the construction, real estate, rental markets and in that industry. And so when I look around, like I look down in Yarmouth, the other person who has built a lot of the new apartments during that same window, he owned a bunch of apartments previously and partnered with the carpenter to build their new units. And to me, like this partnership is fantastic because they added a whole lot more necessary units to the town. I'd argue that they weren't necessarily a new player in development because they owned, they were established. They already had some before. In Amherst, there was really one person who I'd say was new to the industry that has built eight units over that same time frame. Another person who built 12 units is a contractor themselves. And the other people who completed a huge portion of those new builds over that time frame already had established real estate portfolios and had built a number of units previously. That raises the question, okay, so what's going on? 
if the real estate is such a great investment, why aren't people getting into the business? Why aren't new people getting into the business? I mean, everyone hears, like I said, that real estate is a great industry, but getting into this industry has a lot of barriers to entry, right? And so two of the biggest ones right off the bat are access to land and access to capital, and they are tied, they are connected a bit. And so it's pretty obvious. I mean, if you don't have land, you cannot build a new house or an apartment building. That, I think people grasp and get that one pretty quickly. If you want to build a new house and you don't own land, you can't build a new house. The second is access to capital. So you think you got to think both cash or financing to buy the land. Then you got to complete the planning and design process. And then you need capital as your down payment. And then you need access to financing from a bank, credit union, or other lender to actually complete the construction progress. And getting access to construction financing from banks when you're new is extremely tough. I mean, construction loans for any lender are very risky or they have a higher level of risk than just a mortgage on a regular house because if the builder runs into problems and you have half of a finished building, the bank doesn't want that, right? At least if you put a mortgage on an existing house, if the bank has to foreclose on it, they have a house. They don't want a half a building. And so one of the things is they first really rely on and look at your track record as a developer before they will look at providing you financing. I mean, that raises the age old question. If you need experience to get a job, but you need the job to get experience, how do you get in? How do you get started? For me, this is where the municipalities and the provinces can use their knowledge, uh, size and power, right? So one of the things that I look at first is the municipalities could do an inventory of who has built all the houses in their new units over the last 20 years. They could get a sense of how consolidated their development industry is currently, and they could really see trends on if, you know, that consolidation is increasing or decreasing. Or to put differently, they could see trends to see if there's new developers starting and coming into the industry or not. They could also do this for all the like parcels of land that are developed. They could see, okay, are we having new people come in to do this or not? And they could also really look ahead and predict the upcoming probably five years easily. You know, they could look at all the development agreement applications, all the applications and process. They could look at, you know, empty lots, who owns them. Like they could predict this out pretty well, I think. Any municipality and all the municipalities could perform this analysis. But then, okay, so great, you did it. What, what now? None of these analysis would rise to the level where like the competition bureau would come get involved or anything like that. And that that's fine. That's not what this is. But then the municipalities and provinces could really act to increase the capacity of their development industry in their locality, right? So for example, instead of selling a piece of bare land to a developer, the municipality or the province could develop the land themselves. You know, I mean, like municipalities and provinces have access to extremely low cost loans and money, right? Then the municipalities could partner with nonprofits to build housing. They could set maximum limits on numbers of lots they'd sell to established builders. Or this would be a very interesting one. They could even enter into agreements with new builders. So somebody looking to start and get into the industry to sell them a lot of land, but that would only be paid on and sell the closing of the house or at the completion of the apartment building when they get their final draw or financing from the banks, right? So this way the builder would not have to tie up a lot of their capital in the purchase of land. They could use their capital to build the houses or build the apartments. Right, and maybe the municipalities will work with the new builders on you know three or four projects, and then the builder has to go off somewhere else or buy the land themselves. But hopefully over those three or four projects, the new builder would have 
gain the working capital and gain the experience to be able to secure more financing from other institutions, right? So that's one thing. Like I said, municipalities could act to increase the capacity of their own development industries. Another one, like the province could do the same thing with all the land they own. Second, they could really establish like a venture fund for new real estate developers, right? So the province could fund the construction loans for new developers only. Like CMHC provides construction financing, but again, you need to have a proven track record to access it. This is where the province could step in with their venture funding, and it would be there to help them gain the experience to go really to access, say, the CMHC money. We do this through a lot of different government agencies already. I think one of the biggest differences, though, if we did like venture funding of real estate, is that if this venture fund fails, I mean, the province would get like physical real estate back. They could then sell or they could manage under any of the housing authorities. That's one kind of thought, but it would be all about just increasing the capacity of the development industry. And so I started municipalities and provinces. Now we got to go to the feds. We have to go to the federal government because the reality is they're the only organization that can actually fix this problem. The federal government has access to the financing. I mean, they are CMHC, the experience, they build stuff all the time, the capacity and a long-term track record of actually building housing, right? Because when I look at it, the federal government actually building housing is how we dealt with the last two major housing crises. You know, the one 1940s during World War II and then sort of real housing issues that were late 70s, early 80s. I bet you people in all of your towns can drive through the neighborhoods that the federal government built during World War II as wartime housing for workers. And that housing has been affordable and provided good starter homes for families for the last 80 years since they were first built. And you could also go find all the subdivisions that were built with CMHC money and low-cost loans and all those other things in the late 70s and 80s. And so, I mean, that's one thing. But then the other thing is... We used to build a lot of social housing. Like we did a lot of it. And I found this link. I'll put a link to this graphic from the CMHC Housing Observer. And it is just a chart with showing the social housing units built year by year from 1972 to 2010. I don't have the exact numbers like on each year. So I've rounded it as I'm interpreting these. So I broke it down. I looked at 72 to 1994. We built somewhere between 10,000 and 31,000 new social housing units per year. And when I look at this, my estimate is we built about 17,500 social housing units each year. And during the same time frame, social housing consisted of between 7 and 21% of all housing built. Again, I'd estimate that on average, it was 15% of all new housing built during this time frame was social housing. So 1995, we have the Christian liberal government. You'll never guess what happened. Shockingly, from 1995, starting in 1995 until 2010, we only chose to build between 1,000 and 5,000 social housing units per year. And I'd guess on average, we built 1,700 social housing units per year. And that looked like it was an average of about 1% to 2% of the total housing built with social housing. So we scaled back significantly, like a huge amount since starting in 1995. And so this is my simplistic, simplistic analysis here. And I'm going to assume we did not change the supply of social housing we built between 2010 and 2023. In reality, I really guess we built less. But to recap, from 1972 to 1994, we built on average 17,500 units per year. And from 1995 to 2010, we built on average 1,700. So a difference of about 15,800 units per year. And the number that I've seen most quoted, and this was from a few years ago, is that we were short about 500,000 affordable housing units. And I mean, this is a simplistic math. 
if we had maintained our average construction of social housing units from 1995 to 2022, basically if we had built 17,500 social housing units per year instead of 1,700, we'd have an extra 442,400 social housing units, which is basically what we were short. And so we were short social housing because we just stopped building it. Well, this is an even crazier way for me to look at these numbers. Or this is an even different way that I look at these numbers because the CMHC report has us building on average 287,500 homes per year. If we average that 1% social housing, we're building you know 2,875 units. If we were to increase it by 14% to the average that we built from 1972 to 1994, we would build an extra 40,250 social housing units per year between now and 2030. And those units there would meet the need of being below the average cost of housing, and they could actually mathematically lower the price of housing if the federal government were to choose to step up again. When I look at this, I think it is extremely hard or extremely wishful thinking for us to think that the established real estate development industry is it going to act against our own best interests in building enough supply to bring the price down. We need our different levels of government to step in and increase the supply of affordable housing and social housing to actually help deal with this housing crisis. So I don't think I quite kept this to 20 minutes, but this is sort of just a different look that I have on this in sort of looking at that argument. And I really hope we can push to actually start make meaningful changes towards this housing crisis and housing issues. So check in again in a couple of weeks. I don't think I'll do another episode on housing, but between now and then, I can very easily come up with another take or another opinion and spend more time talking about housing. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe in your favorite podcast player or let one of your friends or family know about it. Take care, everyone. What are you doing a small town after the movie shows Main Street is struggling. Monopolies killed my hometown.